Getting custom manufactured parts can be a difficult task. Some local shops are great, but some require order minimums or just won't pick up the phone if you aren't a large company. That's where Zometry comes in. Zometry is trusted by engineers and designers at NASA, BMW, Bosch, and more. Simply upload the design file you want to be manufactured and boom. In a matter of seconds, you'll get an instant quote and access to dozens of manufacturing processes like CNC machining, sheet cutting and fabrication, 3D printing, injection molding, and more. Plus, you'll have plenty of delivery window options and prices available to suit your budget. Worry less and get the parts you need manufactured with Zometry so you can get back to building. Zometry, where big ideas are built. But really, for me, it was always um, looking for opportunities. And when, when the door would open and say, hey, Mark, on top of your you know, 50 hours a week of work, we also need this to get done. And I'd say, hey, great. Let me, let me figure out how to get that done. Help me show me how to do that. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Today we have the pleasure to speak with Mark Ross, who has been leading operations and manufacturing teams for 20 years. His recent roles include Manufacturing Manager at Medtronic and Director of Manufacturing at Endologix, where he led, coached, problem-solved, and performed continuous improvement activities in high-tech medical devices. Mark, thank you so much for being with us on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, Mark, if I've done my research correctly, you are not an engineer yourself, but you've been working closely with engineers for about 20 years now. Is that is that accurate? Correct. Right. Okay. And how how did you get into this space? You know, I fell into this space. I was actually doing sales and marketing for a number of years in the high-tech sector up in Silicon Valley. Um, and then after the dot crash, dot-com crash, uh, we really wanted to move to San Diego to raise the kids here. So we came down here, started, well, actually, I purchased a business, which was crashing and burning. And uh, I had a neighbor who said, hey, you should come work with me over at Abbott. And so uh, while I was still running my business, I began working at Abbott as a uh, first-line supervisor. And then that was 2006, maybe. And then uh, just continued to grow and experience and uh, go from production line to production line and take on new opportunities. And uh, now I'm was director. I was just laid off about two weeks ago, which gives me enough time to come do fun podcasts and things like that. But hopefully looking for that VP slash senior director role here in the near future. Terrific. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you were laid off. I can empathize with you. I've been laid off myself and it was painful. Uh, but I guess one door has to close before another can open, right? It's funny you say that. I, and I feel that's absolutely true. I was really happy at Endologix. And uh, of course, I had some uh, stock options that were vesting every month. So I had no desire to leave. And so it really took something like a layoff in order to get me motivated to say, okay, let's open my eyes and see what's open out there. So Yeah, yeah. Well, you have been a, a leader in the medical device industry for for some time now. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are thinking to themselves, gosh, I would love to be in that position someday myself. What do you think were some of the habits or, or activities or um, 
ambitions or mindsets that you had that allowed you to to climb the ladder into those leadership roles? You know, there's there's two aspects of it, I think, in my mind. One is just taking opportunities. And I've heard people say, hey, that's not my job description. Hey, that's, that's not what I should be doing right now. But really, for me, it was always um, looking for opportunities. And when the door would open and say, hey, Mark, on top of your you know, 50 hours a week of work, we also need this to get done. And I'd say, hey, great, let me, let me figure out how to get that done. Help me show me how to do that. And so there was a lot of that taking on responsibility that was not within my, um, my charter or even my wheelhouse. I may not have known how to do it, but I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in and, and work with the team and figure out how to get that done. And so the more and more I've done that, the more breadth of experiences I've had um, and so I feel like when I jump into a new opportunity, it accelerates the process for me, learning, understanding, and, and making improvements. That's huge. As a business owner myself, I can tell you how extraordinarily valuable and how deeply appreciative I am of team members who, who have that attitude, right? Yeah. They might have hit their 40 hours a week, but something else needs to get done. And they're, they're willing to jump in and, and figure it out and just do it. That's, that's huge. Yeah. As you have grown into positions of more and more responsibility and authority and leadership, have you ever felt imposter syndrome or, or has it always been like, oh, I'm, I'm good. I got this. No problem. Um, I, I don't know if I feel like the imposter syndrome, but there's days when I reflect and I think, you know, I, I may have been in meetings all day or I had a couple of meetings and I wasn't number crunching. I wasn't developing a supply plan or schedule or, or doing the hard work. I just had a couple words of wisdom here and there or encouraged somebody to do this or uh, I had a piece of advice for someone. And maybe that was significant for that day, but really wasn't because I was uh, maybe working harder, but just uh, on that day, I don't, not that I don't work hard, but there's some days you're pounding it out and you've got to get some things done and you, you get it done. And then other days where it just, it's a light load, um, but maybe those few little things you do have a big impact on the business. So, Yeah, that's great. What kind of trends have you been seeing in the uh, medical device manufacturing area? This could be new processes, um, old processes that aren't being used anymore, different materials, costs, just anything that comes to mind when it comes to new patterns that, that you've seen emergence, emerging in the medical device manufacturing space? One is just the continued outsourcing, offshoring that we've been seeing for probably eternity. Um, but the other one, as everyone's probably aware of, is the material availability issue. And some of those uh, extrusion manufacturers, if you work with extrusion or maybe it's metal shops, just their capacity is backed up and they're not expanding fast enough to keep up with the market. Um, I, I know we you talk about the soft landing of the economy if you follow the economy at all. And it looks like we've hit a soft landing. I think a lot of us, me for sure, were expecting to see, you know, the market was taking off and going gangbusters. Typically that always ends in a crash where, uh, you know, the Fed raises interest rates too quick, too hard, and then everything comes crashing down. And then there's a, a reverse of the economy and now there's too much capacity for not enough volume. But uh, it's been interesting to see this, I think other people are also saying, hey, I'm not going to expand because I think the market's going to turn and the market hasn't turned. So you've got kind of a limited amount of capacity trying to meet all the needs of the businesses that are continuing to grow at a, a really quick pace. 
you, you mentioned outsourcing uh, to offshore facilities for some of this contract manufacturing. And you had also mentioned how there's too much capacity, not enough volume. Do you think that's specific to some of the offshore providers or were you seeing that even with domestic providers as well, not enough capacity to... to I've been seeing it more with domestic, of not enough capacity to meet the needs. And uh, I know a lot of the vendors out there who are subcontractors are kind of buying up other companies, they're consolidating operations. And in the medical device where you've got validations that need to be done, um, they just don't have enough capacity to, one, build what you need to do, and two, do the, the proper validations that a, a medical device company needs to have performed in order to validate the process. Um, so it's just been really tough from getting what you need done in a timely manner to meet your company's growth. Yeah, because not any contract manufacturer out there can do the work that medical device companies need. You need to, you know, 1345 yeah. uh, certifications, things like that, FDA compliance, quality systems, regulatory, all, all that fun stuff. Yeah, and we've even seen some of the suppliers when I was at Andalogics um, they'd been doing consolidation, transferring from one location to another, struggling with capacity, then trying to move it to maybe Mexico or offshore. And then everything just, just taking longer than it should have. And it's just a, a tough way to try to manage your business when you're counting on those folks. Yeah. What are some of the traits, the, the habits or behaviors that you've seen in the most successful engineers? And then if it's a different answer, also... Uh, those behaviors and traits that you've seen in the most successful engineering teams? So uh, I think problem solving would be one of the top ones. So, and when I say talk about problem solving, there's a whole aspect, like I like the DMAIC process, um, define, measure, analyze, improve, control. And it's, it's a process that you could use for something quick and easy, or you could do a very detailed one. Um, I see a lot of people going with, oh, I just do a five whys and whatever my best guess is on when I feel like I'm done. That's the best solution I can come up with. And I'd, I really like to see people take the time to dive in, measure data, uh, analyze the data, get some other folks in the room, have a mentor who can look at what you're doing and say, nope, I know you spent a lot of time with that, but I think you're still missing some things. You need to go back and, and spend more, some more time. Like the Toyota um, production system process, they're very strong into the A3s and DeBakes. And I think having that type of tenacity to dive into the real problems and find the root cause and then really think of a couple different strategies of how you mediate that and not rushing to the quick and easiest one but taking the time to to digest it and wait till you get a good answer i think that's that's really important and i think another one that i think is important is doing what you say you're going to do and doing it on time mm. and i think that's tough for engineers i think they say well it should probably take me a month to get this done um, and then it takes three months, four months. And so there's some aspect of realizing that if you, you're you supposed to get something done in a month, try to get it done in two weeks because you know you got to front load that project. You know there's going to be problems and things that are out of your control that you can't um, manage that are going to distract your project. So if you're given a month to do something, front load it and try to get it done in two weeks. And then hopefully you'll hit that one month mark or that one month mark. But that's that's an important trade and something I see. Um, not a lot of folks have that, but when you find somebody who has that ability to get things done on time, it makes a huge difference to the organization. 
Uh, I've worked in a couple of med device where, you know, Kappas, NCMRs are just climbing and they're not, they're not being managed. They just continue to get postponed. Well, I've got so much work to do. I can't finish any of my projects. And it's not the projects often. And sometimes the projects are unmanageable. And sometimes I think it's the people managing the products to say, hey, I've got all these projects to do. I need to get some of these knocked out. Uh, and sometimes the day doesn't end at 40 hours, right? Or the week doesn't end at 40 hours. Sometimes it takes a little effort to get on top of things to get uh, get your schedule under control. So, I want to go back to your comment about finishing on time. We, um, I, I resonate strongly with that. We do. We we have a cal a volunteer program called CAD Club at Pipeline, where we open the doors at our office once a week, and we have students from the community, um, middle school and high school students come in and we teach them CAD and engineering. And there's a lot more behind that. But we have what we call our tenants, the CAD club tenants, and there are 10 of them. And each week we talk about one of them. And and one of them is early is on time. (laughs) And and we've we've kind of hammered this one pretty hard. You know, if you want to finish something on time, be early, because something is going to come up that you're not expecting and if you plan to finish on the due date, you're probably going to be late. So early is on time. That is perfect. I'd love to hear the other uh, 10 tenants. I should read them off here. Let's see. I can remember a couple of them off the top of my head. We've got uh, uh, the difference between good and great is attention to detail. Um, we've got persistence beats brilliance. We've got prevent surprises and uh, another four or five, six there. But those are the ones that... I remember off the top of my head. It's funny the the early is on time tenant. We um we have a jar of uh, bearing balls in the office, and during CAD club, we encourage these kids to recognize when other students in the class are are living these tenants. And when they do, they take one of these bearing balls and they they drop it into another jar, and each one represents a dollar. And at the end of the course, we add them all up and we do a pizza party with the money in there or something like that. So they, they've really latched on to this early is on time. And now almost every single student gets to CAD Club early. And as soon as CAD Club starts, they say, hey, early is on time. We put some some bearing balls in there. So very beginning class, we always have like 10 bearing balls. They go into this jar and everyone loves it. That's great. That's great. That's a great way to help them visualize and understand and live out that whole if you want to be on time, you got to be early. Absolutely. Yep. What are some of the most valuable technical skills that, that you want to see in your, uh, your manufacturing engineers? I'm going to probably leave the technical skills specifics to the technical folks. Um, but I would say uh, what relates well to the technical aspect of doing an engineer's job is spending time with the folks who know the process. Mm. And that's the folks, if you're in, R&D, if you're in sustaining and manufacturing, the folks making your product 40 hours a week, they know the product really, really well. And I know you might think, well, they don't have degrees. Sure, but there's a lot of great brains out there. And so um, but when, I, when I go into an environment, I'm like, hey, there's one of me and there's you know 50 brains on the floor. And so I want you guys to understand you guys have brains and we need them to help us make this better. Like I'm going to have some really great ideas, but really – you guys don't understand this better than I do. And your input is what's going to transform us into cost savings and things like that. Um, so a lot of times I see engineers coming up with solutions in their cube 
And I'm like, well, great. Why don't you take it out to the guys on the floor? And I'll, no, sometimes it's great. And sometimes the people on the floor are like, no, no, that is not going to work. You don't understand. <laughs> like, cute. You engineer, you don't understand. And so if you're open to listen to the folks on the floor, and sometimes I won't tell you to their face. Uh, sometimes I won't tell the engineer to their face. You have to go out there and build trust that you're going to take their opinions. You're going to listen to them. You're going to incorporate their ideas. If you don't have that trust, they're not going to tell you that they're laughing behind your back. So spend some time out there. I get them involved and you might have the answer, but sometimes they will too. So I'm curious, have you encountered resistance ever from the engineers in regards to going and visiting with the operators? You mentioned, you know, they're just like, they don't have degrees and, and maybe hopefully not, but maybe there's some pride there and engineers are like, oh, I don't, I don't need to go talk with the operators. I, I know what to do. Has that been an issue or that's not something that you run into very often? Uh, I'd say it, it doesn't play out that way that often specifically like that. Like that's an exaggerated case. But uh, I was at Abbott and I identified a situation. I was a super senior supervisor, something along that in manufacturing. And we had uh, the sustaining engineers were also the project engineers. And so the good way to get promoted was to work on these cool projects of doing things. And so the the production line might be struggling they might have a, a low yield high scrap issue equipment may not be working but the engineers are focused on these other projects that are fun and you know using their brains and coming up with these great ideas and it's going to go on a resume and they'll get promoted and so um and then quality engineers too similarly they had their own quality process things they were doing in their office and didn't have enough time to be out on the floor so uh, we put together a program where the uh the engineer, quality engineer, production lead, um, the manufacturing tech, and I think there's someone else on the team. Each week had to present up to the uh, directors and managers of manufacturing for our endo endovascular group. And so uh, what started off as, hey, they're not helping us, and hey, I don't have time for them. Um, you know, the, the directors were, were really good about saying, no, you guys are one team. You guys need to figure out the problems and come with solutions. So every week, the talk, every week they would come present on safety, quality, manufacturing yields, and uh, that really helped align that group into going from a, everyone's going their own direction to hey, we all need to be together. So when we present in front of the directors, we're on the same page because it it comes out pretty quickly if if production is not getting support or production is not supporting the engineers. Um, it was it was becoming very evident very quickly. So putting that together helped make that group really um, gel together, work together, and make sure they're all solving the same problems. Yeah, that's great. Well, let me take a very short break and share with the listeners that our company, Pipeline Design and Engineering, develops new and innovative manufacturing processes for complex products, then implements them into manual fixtures or fully automated machines to dramatically reduce production costs and improve production yields for OEMs. Will you be attending the Medical Design and Manufacturing MDNM, trade show this February in Anaheim? If so, we'd love to meet you face-to-face. -face. Stop by our booth, number 1992, and say hi. We'll have hands-on demos of our easy R&D product line for you to experience as well. That's booth 1992, February 6th through 8th, for the MD&M trade show at the Anaheim Convention Center. Today we have the 
privilege of speaking with Mark Ross. Mark, what have been a, a few of your biggest challenges as an engineering leader? I would say one of my challenges has been, um, you know, you talk about your your strengths become your weaknesses. So my ability to get things done quickly um, and efficiently and on time has been a challenge for me when I'm working with people or teams who don't have that same level of uh, commitment. And so times where um, I was trying to push others or a team to match my pace and did not go well. Um, sometimes there were situations where, you know, the, the whole organization needed a quick turnaround. And so um, they needed me to be that person who could be the bad guy and say, no, we got to get this done. But there's been other times too, where I just, I pushed harder than the organization uh, could comfortably accept. And uh, there's times when I should have probably slowed down and considered, you know, not only the desire of the, the organization as a whole, but the individual needs, understanding their capacity and their competing priorities and try to be a little bit more um, compassionate and try to maybe, maybe my project needs to slow down to meet the, the speed of the organization. So um, there's times when an organization says, hey, we need to get this done and I'm able to get the support of the teams and it's very good for the organization. Uh, so at Endo, this is about a year ago at Endologics, we are, we are coming out of budget time and we needed to cut some costs. So I got together with uh, MEs, QEs, and said, hey, here's the deal. Uh, there's a couple ways to cut costs. One is we lose people. The other one is we come together and figure out how to cut manufacturing costs. And so in a 10-week process, um, we did some lean training and uh, some demand training, and we were able to, as a team, figure a way to cut, I think it was 15% of, of – uh, operational costs out of the budget within a 10-week period. But everyone was on board for that. Everyone was supportive, and it went very smoothly. Um, there's been other times where maybe it wasn't as urgent. Uh, I think at Medtronic, Medtronic was actually an urgent one. There were some urgent things that needed to get done because they were potentially at risk of losing the site. Um, but there was a lot of resistance from other folks who that didn't that really wasn't a big deal for them. And so uh, – I did a lot of pushing and shoving to get some things done and we had some great achievements, but uh, some people got run over and uh, you know, I, I wish I could have maybe been a little bit more compassionate and that slowed down a little bit to, um, you know, accommodate the needs and feelings of the other folks who are out there. So I've learned some lessons and uh, you know, th this last uh, work at Endologics, uh, there were times where I'm like, Hey, there's a big cost saving here and cost saving is really important to the company right now. I'm like, here's an opportunity, but here's the the requirements we're going to need from the other departments, which are already uh, overstressed with with their uh, with their current commitments. And so I took it up to the COO and said, "Hey, here's what we've got. There's an opportunity, but we'd have to put even more weight on these folks who are overburdened." And, and the response is, "You know what? We need to just uh, lay off. That is a great project, but..." they don't have the capacity to help us get there at this time. So we have to shelve that. And so um, being able to just have those discussions and, and get a feel for where is the organization, what is the need versus the other teams. And then um, not just pushing my own agenda, but trying to get everybody in sync at the same time to see what we can and can't accomplish. That's a, a fine balance to strike. I think yeah. uh, we had, 
a situation recently at Pipeline where we had uh, a great opportunity for a pretty good sized project, and but it was going to be a really aggressive schedule, maybe the most aggressive schedule we've ever had on our project. There were two machines that we needed to deliver in about a 10-week period, and they were both automated machines, uh, lots of complexity in them. 10 weeks is not a lot of time for, for something like this. So I wanted to do it, of course. I always want to do it, but yeah. I'm, I'm also not the boots on the ground anymore, right? I'm not doing much of the actual engineering work these days. So instead of just saying, yeah, we're doing this, I, I approached the team and I said, hey, we've got this opportunity. It, it, it's a good opportunity for us, but it's going to mean some overtime. A lot of you are going to have to put in some, you know, it's going to be more than 40 hours a week for like 10 weeks. Are you guys up for that? Is that something uh, as a team we can commit to doing? And um, uh, we had some really candid and 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 helpful discussions. And uh, in the end, we decided, yeah, yeah, we can sign up for this. And we did. And I didn't have to push anyone. They were so great. You know, people, they, they were already invested. They had enrolled themselves. So I didn't have to enroll anyone. And Everyone just did what they needed to do to to make it happen, and and uh, it was a, a smashing success in the end. So you can't always uh, do it so cleanly, right? But being yeah. able to give people a chance to enroll themselves, um, I found has has been very useful in those situations. Well, that is fantastic. What a great example, and what a good team you have that you can say, "Hey, this is going to be a tough one. What do you think?" You know, and then yeah, you guys have those tough conversations, but they were willing to, to get behind you and help get that done. That's awesome. They're an uh, amazing group of engineers. I'll just throw a shout out to them right now. We absolutely would not be where we are as a company without all the truly, genuinely amazing, talented, thoughtful, skilled engineers that, that we have on the team. So I, I really appreciate all of them. Um, but this interview is about you, not me and my <laughs> team. So back, back to you, Mark. Um, what what are some of the biggest challenges that you you see facing medical device companies these days? Wow, um, you know, probably more of a macro level opportunity for improvement or macro level drag I see on the the medical device industry is the the regulatory bodies, um, and this is nothing new, but it gets probably harder and harder each year. It seems like where. Um, the, the the regulatory bodies are there in order to maintain and make sure that the companies that are allowed to distribute products within their company are making safe products that meet the customer's needs. Um, and so there gets down to a lot of, hey, have you validated this? Can you prove that out? But uh, sometimes during those audits, the regulatory individuals are very nitpicky about things that really don't matter. And the amount of costs that they drive into the business for us to track and manage things that are really not critical drive up the cost of manufacture. Um, we see a lot of criticism in the market from, hey, cost of pharmaceuticals, cost of medical devices are sky high and increasing. And sure, there's good margins in there because there's a lot of investment and it, you know, it, it takes a lot of money to invent a new drug and a lot of drugs fail. Um, but we also could be doing a better job as a regulatory industry at making sure the product is safe without trying to build an extra cost that's not adding value. Mm. So 
I've heard that a lot lately from medical device leaders. Yeah. Now, the, there was one a challenge, the, um, and I'm going to get this wrong, the accelerated new device for critical devices. So that has really sped up the process for if you've got a new uh, device that's not like anything else in the market, that has sped up um, that process to get that reviewed and get that out in the market. So I will say there was a, a, lot of, a lot of movement for the positive when that came out. Terrific. Yeah. What is, um, what's, a, what's a tool that doesn't exist right now, but if it existed, would allow your teams to be 10 times more productive than they are, you know, 100 times more productive than they are? And this tool does not need to exist within the realm of known physics. Feel free to, to go crazy with this. And um, uh, yeah, what, <laughs> what do you think that tool would be? I am drawing a complete blank. Uh, I don't know what that would be. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, uh, strength finder. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that? That probably falls under that futuristic strength that I'm not sure that I have it. I I like to be in the creative, but yet practical on how am I solving a problem that meets reality type thing. So yeah, it's funny earlier you asked about what, what is it that helps me to be successful uh, in my career, and I would say part of that is it, um, where there's different people in the world, which you know you kind of sometimes think, okay, we're all born and we have the the same characteristics, but not really. I think there is some more of that innate. You're you're born with some skills and abilities. You can grow some skills and abilities, and some things you you can't grow. Um, futuristic is probably one of those things I don't have, but. For me, I think some of the if, – if we use that as kind of a graph of what different skill sets are out there, like the strategic, the winning others over – I'm trying to think of what some of the other ones were that I have. Um, but those types of skill sets uh, that I've had, it, it put me in a position. So when I get into those opportunities of using my analytical and achiever uh, strengths, um, it, it, it plays well into like a senior manager role, being able to look at a strategic – endeavor the winning others over and trying to get people to work together and being the type of person that people enjoy working with the connectedness of looking at all the different systems and how they play well together. So I'd say I've got some kind of God given traits that help me do well in this, but there's maybe other skill sets that I'm lacking where I would be not a good engineer at a cube all day, or I would not be a good someone who needs to use that futuristic sense on a regular basis. Yeah. You mentioned Strengths Finder. Is that a tool that you've used to manage your teams? Um, yeah, sometimes I've had my team go through it, and then it helps accelerate that process of like, oh, okay, now I understand why Mark's always go, 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 and get this done, and and where he's coming from. It helps me understand, hey, this person would be really good at that that data analysis where you're just going to sit in front of your, your laptop or your computer for a week straight. We need that project done, and this guy – likes that. So let's help him do that type of work. And I think as the whole team sees that, they can also see, hey, how can I use other people's strength and not feel insecure that I'm not able to do that as well as they can? Um, But just understand we're all different. So how do we use each other's strengths in order to help maximize our ability to get things done or or improve the environment? Yeah. I I like it. Have you you used it in the past and how so? 
It's it's been a while. Um, yeah, I took it and I had my team take it, but it's probably been eight years or something. Yeah, uh, I I found it interesting, but I'm not sure that I I was able to apply it in a a very productive way. It could have just been that I didn't spend enough time with it. But I'm always curious to hear about how others have used it and what successes they have had. I I think if you're in a team where you all know each other pretty well already, there's probably less value. Um, I think it's more valuable in a, a kickstart where you're, you're like as a leader coming in. Um, and usually when I come in, it's often because things needed to be changed and they needed kind of a change agent. So they're bringing me in. So things are going to change. So let's figure out who we are and how we work. And I think that'll help accelerate us, our ability to change with less heartburn in the process. That's a really important insight. I like that a lot. I agree with you there. Yeah. Okay, great. Thinking back to some of these companies that you have worked with in the past, if you had no limitations on on time, money, resources in general, what's one thing that you could have done for your company that would have had the most significant impact on on achieving their business goals? That is a real tough question. You know, I think and this is probably more applicable to manufacturing where you've got, you know, 50 to a couple hundred people working on a production floor versus maybe an engineering specific organization. Um, but maybe it's tied in. And that is that I talk about the problem solving and to make processes and the ability to just uh, utilize lean concepts. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to Medtronic, the Medtronic operating system, which is like these nine subsystems of these different areas of lean that you want to incorporate within your business. When I first saw it, I said, nine subsystems. I said, somebody was just trying to get their, keep their job, you know, keep coming up with more of the subsystems. <laughs> but uh, the more I learned about it, the more I started using it. And it's everything from, oh gosh, making sure you've got the right inventory, making sure your your yields are good, making sure you've got people that are not waiting for product and you're uh, managing through and I'm really butchering the nine subsystems right now. But those nine subsystems, the more I got into it, the more key I saw they, they do interrelate so well. And you can, we would have these self-tests where you ask questions of yourself about is this high, medium, or low on the, how does this business work in these. And each of the nine subsystems had their own couple of questions. And seeing that system work where you've got a real lean um, system, everything from where the product comes from to how it's getting shipped out, uh, that having that type of system is huge in allowing you to just maximize every opportunity, save costs, make sure you're meeting customer needs, uh, make sure you got the right amount of inventory, making sure you've got people who are maximizing every minute and also keeping them engaged in the process. So I'd say systems like that, uh, putting in implement, implementing systems like that is really key to maximizing your manufacturing effort. You've mentioned Demaic a few times. Can you talk just a little bit about what Demaic is and how you've been able to implement it, use it in in, in practice? Yeah, I, I took like a three day course on it. So let me summarize that in uh, you know two minutes, right? Um, so really, it's 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 just about problem solving, and it's just a tool that you use where you go through five stages and you fluctuate, you jump around between the stages a little bit, but. You try to follow the flow where you first define the problem you're trying to solve. Um, and I think that's really key within the Demaic. Um, and I think there's some good books around there about A3 Demaics and how to do them. 
um, but really defining the problem you're trying to solve. There's been so many times where I walk in organizations and people are talking about this high-level problem, a yield problem, but they haven't defined exactly what they're trying to solve. Um, so one person's mind, it might be machine interaction. One person's mind, it might be people interactions. Or one person's mind, it might be something else. But so defining exactly what it is what you're trying to solve. Uh, and then putting some parameters around it. Like um, problem we're trying to solve is uh, we're trying to improve yield from 78% to 85% over the next eight weeks without negatively impacting cost, morale, safety, yield. Um, and so you kind of measure that out. And sometimes you will spend uh, an hour with a team just trying to figure out that question of what you're trying to solve. Because there may be a lot of things going on in that area that need to be solved, and you need to narrow down and just pick one. Uh, we don't want to be loosey-goosey and say, there's five different things. How do we solve them all? Like, okay, there's five different things going on here that may be impacting us. Let's just pick one. We'll make that, solve it. Then we move on to the next one and solve it rather than having um, – because what you have is a lot of people coming at things from different angles. You've got a lot of arguments on what we should be doing. Um, so it's taking the time to define the problem really well sets the team up for success. Then you're going to measure. So you're measuring all the different aspects that could be contributing to the problem or the solution. And sometimes it takes a long time to measure that stuff, but taking the time to actually measure out that information and record it, put it on a board so everybody can see it helps. Then you're going to analyze. So you're going to be brainstorming. You're going to come up with new ideas. You're going to realize you need to go back and measure some other things you hadn't thought of before. Um, and then uh, some folks have done this. It's, it's, I mean, I, I'm going to get lost in the details, but you're trying to solve for, of the different things we were analyzing, what are the things that are most likely to make an improvement here? So you may have 12 different great ideas, but which of those 12 are really going to have the highest level of impact? And then what can you do within your time span, uh, budget, things like that? And then you actually start doing the improvements. And you may start with one, you may start off with three, but you're improving it. You're continuing to measure to see if you're making an improvement or not. And then there's your control. How are you going to measure to make sure you've actually seen an improvement? And how do you continue to control that or measure that to make sure you don't go back out of control again? Like you may have implemented some things that helped, but if you're not continuing to monitor it, you may get lazy and go back and forget to continue doing those things. So those five processes, um, it's just a problem-solving tool. Sometimes the five whys is great, um, but a lot of times it just doesn't cut it when you want to look for a robust solution that's really going to help you make improvements that you can track and measure and continue to monitor going forward. That's great. Thank you. Crash course on Demaic. <laughs> Who needs the three-day course? we got Mark Ross here in five There you minutes. go. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. All right. How do you see the future of medical device manufacturing in the U.S. changing over the next, say, three to five years? You know, I think it's that continuing to, uh, you know, everyone's continuing to look into cut costs always. And so um, how do you do that? You can get a design engineering firm to come up with new machinery to help you reduce cost of labor, right? Which has maybe a six-month payback. And so if you're looking long-term, you're like, hey, how can I take this manual process and automate it. And I don't think we do enough of that. Um, there's opportunity for us to continue to do more of that, I believe. Um, but then I continuing also to outsource and offshore 
where if I've got, if maybe labor is a third of my cost of product, can I take it somewhere else and cut down that cost of labor? But one of the catches that we often don't give enough justice to is, okay, I'm going to open a facility in Costa Rica or Mexico. Um, but now you also need all the leadership to also manage that. Um, and you're going to have site directors and quality managers and engineering managers all down at that site. And so you've got a lower cost of product, but unless you're going to also offshore all the uh, engineering and leadership to that location, you're going to end up double dipping into that cost uh, cost sector. So um, I see us continuing to strive for reduced cost, improved margins, improved ability, but we need to be careful that we're really taking a look at all the costs incorporated when we do something like that. And I, I, for one, am not a big fan of working with an organization that's on the other side of the continent where the time zone is flip-flopped because it's really hard to have detailed discussions and you send something to them at night, they get back to you in the day, you're having a meeting at seven o'clock at night, it's there five in the morning, things like that, right? It just, it, uh, it, it makes a challenge. It's much easier to stay in your time zone um, from a collaborative perspective. So. And your language, I mean, language barriers, that definitely puts up some additional roadblocks. It certainly does. Yes. Yeah. Well, Mark, uh, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think would be useful for the listeners to hear? Um, you know what there is. I've found I've I've had to be on the side of uh, laying off people many times, and it's never fun. And you always your heart breaks for the folks who are gone, unless they're hoping for the retirement package. <laughs> but most of the time, it's not a happy day for folks. Um, so now being on this side, you know, I probably. It's been about two weeks since I was laid off, and I've probably applied for, I don't know, 15, 20 jobs online. I've also been on the recruiting side, both from a manager, from actually being a recruiter in my past. And um, it's so tempting being on the job hunter side right now to want to apply for a job that you're a pretty good fit for, right? You got most of the stuff. I just had a job that was forwarded me from a friend today, VP manufacturing. Hey, that sounds like a great job. I'm a great fit, except it's an hour and a half commute. And I'm really good with an hour commute, but an hour and a half just seems really obnoxious to me. And so I'm tempted to apply, but I just got a pill back. So you know what? This is not an ideal fit. I don't even need to apply. Uh, especially you look at LinkedIn or Indeed and okay, a hundred people have applied for this job. If you're meeting 80% of those requirements, don't maybe don't waste your time. Right. Just wait for the ones that are really a good solid fit and apply to those. I, I've, I'm sure I've applied to over 100 positions and I've, looking back at my last three or four career moves, they were never from a job I applied for. It was always a recruiter who found me or a friend who found me. Um, so I think of all the time I can invest in strolling through the Indeeds, strolling through the LinkedIn's, finding all the opportunities. Now it's much easier to apply, but sometimes you have to sign up and log in and do all that. And I think of all the time I could invest in that. But my advice to folks is if you find yourself looking for a job, and always, I realize I'll probably be looking for a couple of months, but I'd love to start sooner rather than later. So I've got this uh, financial incentive to apply to anything that may or may not, you know, be anywhere close to my, my uh, acumen. 
But uh, if other folks were in that same position, you find yourself, hey, a medical device is very uh, ups and downsy, right? Especially you moving stuff offshore. We don't need some, as many engineers on site. We're going to have to make some tough choices. Um, if you find yourself in this position, uh, just, uh, don't panic. Uh, look for those opportunities that are a great fit. And, you know, within the locale, you'd be willing to live within the pay range, you'd be willing to accept and just apply to those and uh, make yourself available. But I'd say uh, don't don't just go out uh, uh, shotgunning it and blasting your resume all over the place. You're just uh, spinning your wheels. Go to the beach, you know, go to the park, watch some TV, do, do something that you enjoy. Love it. You know, un unfortunately, we've seen um, quite a lot of these layoffs over the past, I'd say, six to nine months. I've seen a trend of this with uh, a lot of our customers, especially in the medical device space. So this is very timely and uh, thoughtful advice for engineers who are listening to this right now. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Mark, I think um, we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much again for being on the show with me today. And how can people get in touch with you? Uh, LinkedIn is a great way, but there's a couple million Mark Rosses. We have we had three at Abbott when I worked there. So uh, you can look up uh, Mark Ross. I worked at Abbott or Medtronic or connected to Aaron. Um, and I would love to connect with people. I did have a couple thoughts on that, though. Uh, if you've got a question or want advice or have a specific question, please feel free to reach out. Um, if you have a product you think might interest me, let me know what it is. Um, and I'll let you know if it is or is not something within uh, my need. Um, but but don't reach out to me and say you want to be my best friend when you just need to try to sell me something. <laughs> I get so many of these. Like, maybe we could just be friends and hang out. I'm like, I've got a lot of friends. I'm sure that's great. Why don't you just tell me what you're selling? And then yeah. I can let you know that I don't need it. And we can move on and still be connected. And then yeah. there's people out there who keep pinging me. I'm like, no, really. I know I don't need your service. I'm really good. And I have to unconnect with them just because it's a little too much. So feel free to reach out with me. If you've got a great product or service, I'd love to hear about it. Don't be, don't have your feelings hurt when I don't need it, but uh, maybe someday I will. So Very, very clear instructions. I love that. I, I It drives me crazy when I get these requests from people who are like, oh, I LinkedIn uh, suggested that I connect with you and I'm so impressed with everything you've done in your career and your business is so amazing and I, I love your leadership and you don't know me. Come on. You're, you're peddling something. Just tell me what it is and let's get through this, you know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you uh, sharing some of your experiences and, and insight in the industry and uh, very excited for all of the listeners to get to benefit from that as well. Thanks so much, Aaron. I love being on here. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.